Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! guys sorry we're a little behind um Eric welcome to man challenge uh my name is J.R. Slaughter uh I'm your MC today I'm not sure how I got this job but I got it um I've got three daughters um Summer Samantha and Skyler two of them go to Western Kentucky one just graduated and one goes to University of Kentucky I'd like to recognize, first of all, um, I lead table 10 with Chris Cook. If uh, Airman Mitchell Cox would stand up. <laughs> Mitchell, uh, Mitchell joined our table. You stay standing, bro. He joined our table last year, and uh, he wanted to serve our country. He just got back for a week, and uh, he's doing great things. So I just wanted to recognize him um, and say thank you for your service. If you're new to Man Challenge, uh, would you raise your hand? First timers? Welcome, awesome, that's awesome. If you've, if you've attended Man Challenge for more than two years, would you please raise your hand? Wow, that's powerful. That is powerful, so. Um, so excited to be here, so excited to be with you guys. I mean, what we want to do here is we're just connecting men to Jesus and creating male, authentic relationships. And what we learn inside is what we want to take outside of these doors today to, um, to further making disciples. Is uh, Mark cool here? Where's Mark? Hey, brother. Hey, keep doing your thing. We appreciate you. So I wanted to share a quote from uh, Masters champion um, Scott Scheffler on Sunday as he was uh, leading the Masters. Um, he was sick to his stomach. He didn't think he could perform, didn't know what to do. And the press conference after uh, he had won the Masters, he said this, who am I to say what I know what is best for my life? God is in control. The Lord is leading me. If today is my time, then it's my time. If I shoot 82 today, then somehow I will use that for his glory. That's pretty powerful, and he went on to, uh, to win the Masters. Um, like to make a few announcements uh, before we get started today. Um, like I said, we've got today, and we only have two more weeks of Man Challenge this semester, um, but we're gonna do a summer series uh, this summer, and there should be something up on the screen uh, for the summer series. Um, it's gonna be your spiritual gifts. Um, the Bible says we've all been, all, all been given a gift, so we are gonna be uh, teaching on that this summer. So um, I hope you reach out to your table leaders and make sure that uh, you attend those. Um, Easter Sunday is our Super Bowl Sunday for, uh, for Christians, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, we have five opportunities here at Southeast to, uh, to attend church. Uh, the first is tonight another service Friday night, Saturday night, 
and two on Sunday. Uh, FCA United Champions, Chris Morgan got, yeah he, yeah, he got stuck in traffic. So I wanted to make the announcement for FCA. So you table leaders, if you could, please reserve a table for the Night of Champions. There is no charge. Um, you can get eight to a table, plus they'll put an athlete with you, and then just make a donation um, when you show up. So it's a great event. It is uh, Monday night. April 25th, uh, you'll hear people like Eric Wood, um, Chris Morgan, and so many others uh, talking that night. So um, last but not least, Go Ministries Mission. Um, the trip will be led by Ronnie Cordray and Hunter Sen, October 22 through the 29th, and the signups, I believe, will start in May. So we encourage um, many of you to go. I know I'm going. A few of the guys from my table at 10 are going. So um, the more the merrier. I'd like to now introduce uh, our guest speaker today, Mike Cosper. How you doing, bro? Good, man. You came in on fire, right? I coming in hot. Yes, sir. Last minute. Yes, sir. Tell the guys a little bit about yourself. Well, yeah, um, my name's Mike. I uh, uh, lived in this area most of my life. Grew up in southern Indiana and been over on this side of the river for 20 years or so now. Um, was part of helping to plant Sojourn Church. Pastored there for about 15 years. And then for the last seven years, I've been working in various aspects of Christian media. Um, ran a podcasting production studio for a few years. Actually worked with Kyle on his podcast. Um, for a couple of seasons, and then I've been with Christianity Today for the last two years. That's awesome. I've got a couple rapid-fire questions for you. All right. Here we go. I didn't know there would be. And a, we didn't discuss these. Yeah, I, I was told there would be no math. <laughs> Your favorite band? Uh, oh, man. Like all time or like at the moment? Your favorite That's band. That's a different thing. At the moment. Uh, probably Pearl Jam of all time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Your favorite guitarist? Gosh, that's not fair. Um, I'm a guitar player, so this is a big deal to me. Uh, probably Derek Trucks, I would say, is like my favorite, who's like working now. You like Joe Bonamassa? Oh uh, yeah, Joe's good. You know, not wow. my thing, but yeah, not wow. my cup of tea. That's impressive. Your yeah. favorite album? My favorite album is probably Pearl Jam Versus, their second record. Favorite podcast? Favorite podcast is um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Revisionist History. Favorite book? The Bible, man. Come on. We're, we're Here we go. We Come yes, sir. On. So we reached out to your family. Oh. <laughs> so question one, what is your favorite thing about your dad? Oh, man. My, my dad was maybe the most generous, welcoming spirit of anybody I've ever known. So we lost dad about a year ago, and thinking about the way he loved people has just been one of the most profound things to reflect on in the last year. A couple of things said about you, um, Dorothy. My favorite thing about my dad is his way he cheers us up when we are sad and upset. Mm. I also love his hilarious sense of humor. Maggie, he makes me feel like I'm not alone, and he helps me in my faith almost every day. Mm. Sarah, your wife. Right, we've met. From the moment I met Mike, I knew a few things. He was handsome, hilarious, 
could shred on the guitar <laughs> and cared about people that were suffering and wanted to know them in Christ. Hmm. That's powerful, dude. Yeah. So let's pray for, uh, let's pray for Mike. Thanks, man. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all here today. Lord, just keep our, our minds, our hearts, our ears open today. And uh, I just pray the Holy Spirit just works through Mike into us and, and we hear his word this morning. So I appreciate you men in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I am, like I said, super grateful to be here and, and, and serve you all this morning. Hopefully this is useful and helpful and all that. Um, and... You know, I, um, like I said, I, I, I've been part of this community for a long time, and you know, even as, as part of the pastoral team at, at Sojourn, we, we always have had just a, a tremendous amount of gratitude for the work that Southeast has done for the sake of the gospel in this city. And so I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to start without mentioning that. Like, I, I think the work you all do here um, and, and the presence you have in a city that needs Jesus is so critical and beautiful, and um, so, so thank you for that. Um, it was funny, I, you know, I first heard from Ronnie a, a little while back about uh, coming to, to talk with you all this morning, and uh, you know, I was excited to do it, and I said, okay, what are we, what are we talking about? What's the, what's the passage? And he says, okay, it's 1 Kings 7-1, and I was like, one verse, so the guest guy, it's like, let's just make sure he has a very narrow bandwidth, not to say anything stupid, and then I look at the passage, and it's Solomon completed his entire housing complex after 13 years of construction. And I thought, all right, well, this will be interesting. Let's, let's see what we've got here. Um, but as I looked at the passage and read it in the broader you know, context of 1 Kings 6, 7, you know, in the broader book, um, it really is a fascinating window into Solomon's heart, Solomon's lives, Solomon's life, and I think into men's hearts. Um, all men's hearts, all of our lives, because it tells us something about um, a, a massive temptation and a massive longing like that lies underneath those temptations that I think every single one of us experiences. Um, specifically, what's happening here in 1 Kings 7 is that the, the, the chronicler of Solomon's life is contrasting the construction of, of his house, his palace, with the construction of the temple. The process of building the temple was a seven-year-long construction project. Um, if any of you all have ever built a house or overseen a, a construction project in your life, you're seven years. I know for me, I get like a cold sweat thinking about that. But, but for Solomon's you know, palace then, it was a 13-year construction. And you know, there's, this, there's this tremendous amount of detail in the Bible telling us what's going into each of these projects, the, the kinds of wood, the kinds of jewels, the kinds of wealth that's on display in both of these places. And, you know, you have, we have to ask ourselves, you know, the, the New Testament tells us every scripture, every word of scripture is God-breathed, it's useful. So, so what's the usefulness of this detail? What's the usefulness of, of this chronicler telling us everything that's happening here? Um, for me, as I looked at it, and particularly as I read, you know, the description of Solomon's house, um, the first thing I thought of, the first phrase that popped to mind was, you know, man cave, right? So here's Solomon, he's got all this wealth, and he's building this, this palace for himself that's this incredibly uh, luxurious and comfortable kind of place. And, you know, when, when that phrase came to mind, I started thinking about it because I, 
I remember like growing up as a kid, I never heard the phrase man cave. I don't know when you all first heard it. For me, I, I wanna say it was maybe like 15, 16 years ago, something like that, that I heard it for the first time. And, and you know, just heard the descriptions. You know, a lot of people have sort of their version of it. It's, for some people, it's their like gaming room. You know, maybe there's a poker table in there. Maybe there's a, a pool table. Maybe there's a, you know, maybe it's video games. Um, for other people, it's something like a, like a home theater. This is where you do your, you know, watch movies or you, you watch sports or whatever. But for me growing up, you know, it's funny you mentioned my dad because I thought about my dad. I, for, for him, you know, the, the man cave was actually the living room, right? This is where he lived. This was the room that was, was oriented around his own kind of passions and, uh, and, and his own desire to sort of get away and, and get away from the world a bit. Dad was, a, dad was an engineer, and he loved kind of every, every technological innovation that came out. Like, Dad was in for it, especially when it came to the home theater. Um, and so he always, we, for Dad, it was always like the cutting edge thing, right? So, so we grew up with Betamax cassettes in our house. You know, most people had VHX, uh, VHS, but Betamax was like, the, those cassettes were a little bigger, and they were a little better by certain standards or whatever. But like, nobody had Betamax, and it failed as a technology and went away a few years later. Um, then we had, um, some of you all will remember laser discs. Anybody remember laser discs? They were like this big. Uh, and it looked like a DVD, but they were 12-inch, you know, 12-inch cuts. Um, but I was talking to my brother about it a few weeks ago, and one of the things he reminded me of was um, they were called CEDs. And these were also these big 12-inch discs, but they were in like a cassette, and they were read with a needle, and they were analog. And this all sounds crazy, but this was a movie technology in the 80s died quickly and all of this, but this was dad. It was always like the new thing, you know, and then of course it was DVDs a few years later and Blu-rays after that and um, he, he loved this stuff. And, and there was this constant rotation of it in our home because it was always um, for him escaping into movies, escaping into TV, escaping into entertainment had been such a part of, of his life. And it was something he shared with the people he loved and we all, we all joined him on those journeys. Um, it wasn't until I was a lot older, um, and really in some ways in, in just the last few years, even after this last year when he passed, I started to understand that at a deeper level. Because dad grew up, dad grew up in, in, in Miami, uh, South Beach particularly, uh, back, in, back in a time when South Beach was still kind of up and coming. My, my great grandfather moved down there when it was a swamp. Uh, my grandfather uh, essentially ran the, the fire department shop um, down there at the time. <clears throat> and so he and his brothers, I mean, they were kind of these, these feral kids, half the, half the island you know, that's developed today. It was all swamp back then, and they were just running all over this place. They were fishing in government cut and all around there. And, and so there was a lot of chaos in the home. And, and my grandfather, late in life, through the ministry of Billy Graham, became a Christian. But for much of his life, he wasn't. He was, he was a volatile, violent man at times. Uh, and, and so home was a volatile, violent place. 
So as a kid, dad would, you know, one of his favorite things was to escape from the home uh, on a Saturday afternoon and go to the movie theater and to disappear into this dark room with a big screen and to watch whatever Hitchcock had just put out or whatever the new sci-fi horror movie was, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still and, and The Thing or, you know, Plan 9 from Outer Space, these, like, classic, terrible movies. And, um, and so as, as I've thought about this in the years since, it's this, this space that he created in our home was kind of a, a reflection of this safe space that he was retreating to when he was a kid as well. And I think there's a degree to which for, for all of us, um, there's something in the human heart that longs for that kind of escape. We're longing for that kind of rest and respite. And frankly, we were all made to, to seek a home like this. We can look at Genesis chapter 2, and there's, there's a remarkable amount of detail in what Genesis 2 tells us about the home God made for his people. Um, we'll start, I'm going to read a little bit of the passage. Uh, it's Genesis 2, starting in verse 8. It says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused him to grow out of the ground every uh, tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of go- the garden. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Uh, Onyx is also there. The second name of the river is Gihon. Um, And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth is the river Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And what's interesting to me about that passage is actually the thing that makes that passage a little slow and difficult to read, right? Here's the world as it's been created. Here's Adam fresh in the world. And when God creates him, he drops him into a specific place, right? When, when, when Adam shows up in this place, it's a place with names. It's a place surrounded by all of these names. He's, he's in a place called Eden. Um, there are rivers and, and landmarks around him, you know, Pishon, Havila, Cush, Gihon, Assyria, the Tigris, the Euphrates. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a fascinating vision in that when, ma- when mankind was created, we were created to live in a place. We were created to have a sense of belonging and a sense of home. And, and in that home, we, we can fast forward a little bit into Genesis 3, and we can see another landmark of, of what it meant to be in a home. You know, if, we, if you're familiar with the story of of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. We know that Genesis 3 is when, when the, the serpent enters the garden and he tempts Eve and, and he tempts Adam and Adam and Eve sin, they fall into sin and, uh, and suddenly they discover they're naked and they're ashamed. And they're, so they, they cover themselves with fig leaves um, and then we, Genesis 3 verse 8, we see another glimpse of what life in the garden was like um, before the consequences of their sin disrupted it. It says... Um, Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God uh, among the tree of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? So, so the second thing I want to point out is that 
God is living in their midst. God is dwelling in their midst in that place. Um, and, and so that's the significance of this idea of home. That we were created to live in a, in a place. We were created to have a sense of roots. Um, and we were created to live in that place with that sense of, of belonging because God dwelled there with us. We lived in community with him. And of course, the result of the curse then is that they're cast out of the garden. And if you fast forward then to, to, to verse 23 and 24, when the curse uh, takes its effect, um, they're cast out of the garden. God places a, an angel at the eastern gate of the garden to guard it so that they can't re-enter and, and eat from the tree of life. And, you know, most of us, if you grew up in the church, you, you heard the language of them being thrown out in the wilderness. But actually, if you look at the text, you know, one of the things that's clear, particularly in the Hebrew, is that um, when they're cast out, there's no name for the land that they're cast out into anymore. The, the names disappear. And so there's this, you know, there's this fear that then accompanies mankind when, when, when Cain kills Abel and, and, and Cain is cursed and cast out from the community, from the tribe. His, his fear is like, I'm going to wander the earth. There's going to be no place for me to rest my head. I'm, I'm going to be a drifter. And, and that's the, a, a major aspect of the curse is this feeling of longing for home, of longing for belonging, of longing for a sense of place. Um, so the story of creation and, and the fall of humanity itself isn't just about this, this abstract idea of sin and holiness, which is so critical. It's also about this idea of belonging, of place, of community, and of home. And there's something in us because of that, that for all of our lives is craving a return to home, is craving a, a return to this sense of, of, of place. And it's not simply because Eden was a paradise and life was easy and good. Um, it's because it was the common ground where we lived at peace and in community with God. So, so then let's fast forward now. Let's fast forward into the life of Solomon and into this moment where you see the contrast of these construction projects, the, the glory of his palace, this massive palace that he's built for 13 years, and the glory of the temple. And, and the contrast is important because obviously he's poured, he's poured 13 years into the, to the home, but he's poured seven years into the temple. So it's not like the temple's, you know, this shabby place across the street where, where no one wants to go. This is a gorgeous, beautiful, glorious place. So gorgeous and glorious that they have to defend it with their military um, for many, many years until it's ultimately conquered because people are trying to get in there to steal all the stuff, the wood, the jewels, the, the, the gold is so incredibly valuable. Um, I think for, for us living in this modern age in this modern time where, you know, church for us looks the way that it does. We, we enjoy the comforts of, you know, air conditioning and comfortable chairs and, you know, projection screens and music and all of this. We, we tend to look back on what worship must have been like in the temple. And, and there's something in us that just, I think, probably kind of assumes like this was violent, there was blood sacrifice, this was primitive, um, you know, thank, thank goodness like there's no goats running around here and we're not worried about like which direction's the blood gonna flow at the end of the service so that, you know, our socks aren't wet when we're getting out to our cars. But what, what's so valuable in, in the imagery of the temple in the Old Testament is that it continually brings us back to this language that God is there. And God is uniquely there throughout the life 
of the people of Israel in the Old Testament and in a way that he's not everywhere else in creation. Um, and so that's what makes more than the dietary customs, more than circumcision, more than the story even of Exodus that defined the Jews as the people that they were. The fact that God lived in their midst and showed up, manifest in his glory in their midst. That was the thing that really and truly set them apart in a glorious way from the rest of the world. Um, there's a theologian, his name's G.K. Beale, and he's written several books uh, looking at themes related to the temple and to worship and to Eden as well. Um, and he has a book called the, the, the Temple and the Church's Mission. And there's just a handful of things worth pointing out that he talks about in this book. He says, um, he says you know, you look at Genesis 3 and you see God dwelling in, uh, in, in the midst of humanity. Um, that's the first way you see the reflection of Eden in the temple. Um, Adam, if you look at Ezekiel 28, when it describes Adam, it kind of retells that creation story. And when it describes Adam, it, it, it attributes to him all these jewels, all this gold, all this stuff that he's wearing. And it's a perfect parallel to what the, the high priest is commanded to wear uh, when, when, when the vestments and everything are being described uh, about what's going to happen in the temple. Um, Adam's mandate in Genesis chapter 2 is to cultivate and keep the garden. Um, those exact words are used to, to describe the work of the Levites who care for the temple. Um, there's a lampstand in the middle of the temple that very clearly is made into the image of a tree. And, and what's at the heart of the garden but the tree of life, the tree, um, uh, the, the tree of eternal life. Um, the temple itself, if you read the descriptions, you can look in 1 Kings chapter 6, and it goes into the detail of, you know, th this kind of tree, this kind of wood, these pomegranates. And the reason for all of that is they're all reflecting back on the, 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 the fertility and beauty of the garden. And then, you know, even the entrance to the temple is supposed to be entered from the east, which is where the, the entrance to the garden was. Um, one other, one other thing, the, the, throughout the Old Testament, there's this phrase, the mountain of God, and it continually is, is referring to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Well, you can see that Temple Mount even, even today. But again, Ezekiel 28, this interesting window where the, where the prophet is connecting the life of Adam to the life of Israel, um, it refers to the mountain of God, and in that instance, the mountain of God is actually referring to Eden, not to Jerusalem itself. So, so this brings us to Solomon, this, this man who was tasked with building the temple and with, with bringing this, this vision of God's presence into the world. And if you look, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a parallel account to Solomon's life in the book of 1 Chronicles. And, and if you look in 1 Chronicles 7, there's this moment where we see what happened when they dedicated the temple. Um, Solomon, Solomon prayed, he prays this long prayer um, to dedicate the temple. And then it tells us this, 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. It says, When he finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And again, like, this isn't happening anywhere else on earth, right? Like, God is uniquely present there and in that place. It tells us then, verse 2, The priests could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it. 
When all of the Israelites saw that fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Even though that glory was right in front of Solomon, even though he's seeing that with his own eyes, there's, there's something in his own heart and in his own life such that the author of 1 Kings goes out of his way to make sure that we all see the comparative scale that he's still pouring into his palace, his home, this place where he's going to live. And so we have to ask ourselves then, why does, why does that detail matter? Like, why, why is he doing this? Why, when that glory is right in front of him, is he pouring his life into a palace that, in a sense, is a monument to himself? And, and we have to, 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 to frame it more broadly into the story that we now live in as Christians, as followers of Jesus. One of the things that's very clear to us uh, throughout the New Testament is the way that the temple itself is a foreshadow of the, the work that Jesus is going to do to restore humanity to God, into communion and, and into relationship with him. And yet even the wisest person who ever lived, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, suffered the same fundamental flaw as Adam and Eve. He failed to see how God's presence was far more valuable far more glorious than any other riches in the world. You know, for Adam and Eve, the temptation was, you'll be like God, you'll see things like God. And what they lost, though, was communion with God, life with God. And here's Solomon, he's built this temple, God is dwelling in his midst, and yet the glory of that life is somehow still lost on him, such that he, he pours his life, he pours his energy, he pours his wealth into building this monument to himself. I think sometimes we read this stuff and, and there's this temptation because of sort of pride of place and, and pride of history, pride of, of intellect or perspective, that we look at this and we just, we just want to assume something about um, sort of the evil intent of, of a guy like Solomon making that kind of investment with his life. But, but I also sometimes wonder if we miss the, the deep humanity of the moment, that, that so much of this, you know, like, like all of us who have our own longing for a place, who have our own longing for a sense of glory, um, how much are, are, is that expression, uh, how much is that an expression of our wounds, of our brokenness, um, of wanting a place like my dad who would want to disappear into those, those dark theaters and get lost in a movie and a story that could take him away from, from the very real pain that he grew up with. You know, Solomon's life is this life of glory, is this life of achievement and, and power and wealth, but it's also a life that was born out of an immense tragedy and immense sorrow. You know, his mom was Bathsheba, and, and he was her second son. The first of her sons was the product of this adulterous event where, you know, most scholars actually looking at it today, they, they say, like, there's a reason Nathan comes to David. And when he describes Bathsheba, he describes her as this in, in, innocent lamb that David essentially kidnaps and takes to the palace and sleeps with her. Uh, she's an innocent lamb because she doesn't want any part of this. He's, you know, he's assaulted her. He's brought her in. And then that child dies. And, and then Nathan the prophet confronts David, and David repents. Not only that, David then kills Bathsheba's husband to try and keep from being found out. 
And, and when he's confronted with this, he repents, he marries her, um, and, and Solomon is born out of that. But we have to ask ourselves, I mean, this should be realistic, right? Like, do we think that story, to grow up in that story, in that environment, was sort of like a dreamy, happy, healthy home in the life of the palace, where there's all these wives, where people are constantly trying to kill, you know, your, your half-brothers are all trying to kill dad, you know, every six or 12 months. This is a violent, volatile kind of place. And so I think Solomon, like, like any human being, like any man, like any one of us, would, would have a longing for respite, would have a longing for a sense of home and a sense of rest and place. You know, for, for all of us, our, our wounds like that, the various ways we've been hurt over the years, they're this bottomless pit. And there's this immense temptation for us to pour our lives into creating something and to building something that we can, we can then find our rest in and find our comfort in. And there's just as much of a temptation, and, and maybe this is part of Solomon's uh, palace as well, to, to have something spectacular and distracting that we can lose ourselves into. You know, that could be um, our, the distraction of alcohol or drugs or sex or porn or constant travel or more p possessions or more success and achievement. No matter what we pour into our, our wounds, they'll never fill them and they'll never satisfy them. We long for something more substantive. And so I think we have to be willing to look at our lives and ask, how are we trying to satisfy the restlessness of our own hearts? What, what is our palace we're trying to build that we think is gonna make us feel like we've come home and satisfy us when, when the glory of the temple is so nearby and God is promising us something more satisfying? St. Augustine wrote that, that our souls are restless. It was in a prayer he wrote. He says, our souls are restless, God, until they find their rest in thee. Nothing else is going to satisfy until we return home. And home is life with God. Another thing I think we can see, another way to look at the life of Solomon, though, is that the, there was a limit to the temple, Right? Because, you know, one of the things you see throughout the, the story of the Old Testament is that if you get too close to the heart of that temple where there's a dramatically holy God and, and we are sinful people, that's a life and death encounter. There are very specific things men had to do, the priests had to do, to be able to get close to that glory and certainly to get close enough to offer the sacrifices and, and offerings. Um, one of the, the stories, I heard this sermon years ago by a guy named R.C. Sproul, and it stuck with me ever since, where he was talking about the holiness of God and the holiness of the objects at the heart of the temple. And there's this story where, you know, the, 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 the Israel was con conquered by the Philistines. And in the midst of that, they came and they raided the temple and they took away a, a whole bunch of the furnishings of the temple and the gold and the jewels and all this. And one of the things they took was the Ark of the Covenant. And they marched off with the Ark. And eventually you know, they were conquered again, and the ark was recovered, and they, they were taking it back to Jerusalem. And what's interesting in that story is that they took a shortcut. Um, it's very clear when, when the ark is made, the, the ark itself is supposed to be carried by hand. There's a, there's a whole system, you know, you put the rods through it, it's supposed to be four dudes, and they're, you know, they're each handling the rod, because you can't touch the ark 
The ark is holy. That's where God shows up. You touch the ark, you're going to die. Like you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know what that looks like? It's not pretty, right? <laughs> so so they, they get the ark, though, and they don't do it the way it's, they don't handle it the way it's supposed to be handled. They put it on an ox cart um, because it's a long way away, and who the heck wants to carry it by hand that far, right? So they put it on an ox cart, and it tells us that, that at some point on the journey back to Jerusalem, uh, one of the oxen stumbles, the, the cart rattles, and the, 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 covenant look, the ark of the covenant looks like it's going to tumble off and fall to the ground. And there's a priest, his name is Uzzah, who sees this happening, and he reaches out and touches the ark to, to protect it. He wants to make sure it doesn't fall off the cart. He wants to make sure it doesn't hit the ground. And as soon as he touches it, he drops dead. And what Sproul said that has stuck with me forever is he said the sin of Uzzah was thinking that his hands were cleaner than the dirt. That the holiness of God is such that you can't, you can't do that. You can't go there. There's something limiting us. And so even for Solomon, even with the glory of the temple and the palace, there's still something in the way, in the human heart, that can't quite get home. And so we can look at that example of excess, and, and that's completely true. But we can look at it as well. And we can see that even with the temple, even with the glory of the temple at the heart of the life of Jerusalem, there was still an outcry in his soul for something more, for a deeper kind of return to home, a deeper kind of communion. And it's not bad to want that. We, we need to want that. We need to acknowledge that it's there, but we need to understand where that is ultimately supposed to lead us. I remember seeing on 60 Minutes, this is back in 2005, um, there was this interview with Tom Brady. And uh, I, I hate referencing Brady on any level. I'm a Colts fan, so uh, you know, the fact that I have to mention Super Bowl rings in this is, is, is painful to me. But he talked about, you know, back in 05, which is, I mean, wild to think that this was, what, 17 years ago, and uh, he had three Super Bowl rings already. Um, and he says this in this interview, he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be all it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, I'm 27. What else is there for me? And, I, and I'm not trying to pick on Brady, but you look at his life now and here we are 17 years later. And, and he's still chasing that ring, right? That he's still chasing the next one. And you gotta wonder, like, is that, is that hunger, like what would he say about this now? Is that hunger still there for something that's gonna satisfy that inner restlessness? What keeps us going? What's the thing we're returning to again and again and saying maybe this thing is gonna satisfy that restlessness in our hearts? I think if you, if you look at the life of Jesus, there are so many moments that illustrate that, that longing and that desire and, and the ways he worked to answer it. One of the stories that's become particularly meaningful to me is in Mark chapter 9, and it's the story of the transfiguration, and I won't read it in detail, but you can look at it later. Mark 9, Jesus and, and three of the disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, they, they go up this mountain, 
And you can go today and you can see the mountain. It's Mount Tabor. Um, it's this weird place. There's the Jezreel Plain is out here. And, and the Jezreel Plain is this place where all these famous battles in the Old Testament took place. And, and famous battles have taken place there in the last hundred years. There was a big battle there in, in World War I and World War II. And, and, and so there's this, there's this plain and then there's these mountains to the north. And then sort of set apart from the mountains is this weird sort of perfectly round rock that's 1,200 feet high called Mount Tabor that sits in the middle of it. And Jesus and these three disciples, they go up on this mountain, and when they get up there, something glorious happens. Jesus transfigures, he transforms to this incredible glowing, whiter than white light. And then Elijah and Moses appear. And Jesus and Elijah and Moses, they're talking, and they're, they're interacting. They're old friends that have come back together. And, and Peter and, and the, you know, the other two disciples, they're freaking out, right? Like, that's, that's an unbelievable thing, not just because of the glory, but then here are the heroes of their faith. You know, Elijah conquered the prophets of Baal on those plains. You know, th this, is a, this is a site where these are warrior kings, warrior prophets, and, and they've come together in this kind of historic place. And so Peter cries out to Jesus, and he says, he says, look, wh why don't we build shelters, right? Why don't I build, I'll build three shelters, so, and wh what's he after? He's like, let's make this last. Let me build three shelters. And the word that he uses is the word tabernacles, which is what we understand is the heart of the temple is the tabernacle, the place God dwells. He's saying, let me build tabernacles. Let's stay there. Can we make this moment last? And almost as soon as he says it, God speaks from heaven and, and reminds them that this is his son and that he's pleased with him. And they fall to their faces and they worship, just like you saw in First Chronicles when the glory of the Lord showed up. And then when they look up again, the glory's gone, Elijah and Moses are gone, it's just Jesus, and he's walking down the mountain because he's headed to Jerusalem. He's just a few months away on this, this long, slow journey to Jerusalem. And he, he says something remarkable in the moment. He says, he says, I don't want you to tell anybody this story until after I've raised from the dead. And their reaction is to go, wait, you're, you're, you're death? You're going to die? Because Jesus understands that the glory of that moment is a, is a moment that can't last because his work isn't finished. Because the work of restoring us to, to God isn't done yet. And so he, he continues his work. He, he goes down the mountain, and almost immediately, one of the things you see in Mark 9 is that the crowd is stunned. Because again, this mountain's on a plain out in the middle of, sort of, uh, out, surrounded by very flat ground. And it's not like it's so high that you get to the top of the mountain and it's covered with fog. People know something happened. They don't know what it is. So the crowd's kind of amazed. They're rushing in to meet Jesus. And a guy shows up with a kid who's, who's been possessed by a demon. And the contrast is so important because Jesus heals him. The disciples had tried to cast out the demon and they couldn't, but Jesus shows up and immediately casts out the demon. And what we see is the work that has to be done to heal the world, to, to conquer evil, to cast it out so that we can come home to God. And so Jesus goes on to Jerusalem, and this past Sunday, it was Palm Sunday, and, and all the imagery of Palm Sunday, when he, when he shows up in Jerusalem, they're thinking about Jesus, this, this figure, the, the stories that they've heard of him, of him conquering evil, of him befuddling the, the religious rulers, and, and, and speaking for, with the voice of God. 
and they're thinking of him like Moses and like Elijah because those guys weren't just prophets. Those guys weren't re just religious leaders. These were warrior leaders. These were, these were heroes of the faith. And, and for the Jews that were living in Jerusalem, they're living under the thumb of the Romans. And they've heard all these stories about Jesus, and they're thinking, this is our guy. He's going to drive out the Romans. We're going to be free. This is our conqueror. So they welcome him like a king, waving the palm fronds and everything else. But there's this subversive thing that happens, is that he doesn't come in marching on a war horse. He comes in on a donkey. And there's something subversive in that message. He's, it's a mockery of the conquering king that he's coming in on, on a donkey. And then one of the first things that happens when he gets there is he goes to the temple. But he doesn't go to the temple and celebrate the temple. He walks into the temple, and what he sees are these money changers. And what the money changers are doing is they're creating obstacles that are keeping people from getting to God. Because you show up in Jerusalem, and you've got the wrong kind of currency for your offering, or you don't have the livestock you're supposed to need. And so there's these grifters sitting outside the temple, and you can give them your money, and they will exchange it for the local currency, but they're going to tax the heck out of you when you do it. They're going to bleed you dry. And it tells us that he was especially angry at the guys that were selling doves. Why doves? Why does that matter? Because a dove was the acceptable offering for somebody who was too poor to bring a lamb. His heart for the poor, his heart for the broken, his heart was for the outcast. His heart was for the people who couldn't come in, who couldn't enter into communion with God. And so that was the journey that he had to continue on. It wasn't finished. So you couldn't stay, you couldn't hang in the glory of the moment of that transfiguration. When Jesus dies, something dramatic happens. This, this Friday, we, we, we celebrate it. He dies, and there's a moment when he dies. Matthew 27, it tells us that the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. This, this, this final barrier that kept us out, that kept us from home, was torn from top to bottom. I have a friend who was talking about it one time, and, and she said this, and I'm, I've never forgotten it. She said, you know, when I, when I read that, the image that comes to mind is, is like, you know, when somebody wakes up in the morning and they tear open the curtains because they're just eager to see the, the morning, the, the light of day. She says, I just imagine God's presence just tearing open the curtains because, because the work is finished. And he, with his heart, for his people is tearing open the curtains and rushing out into the world to claim his church. The invitation of the gospel is that we can come home. We can come home to this place. The Garden of Eden was, 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 was a place where we entered from the east. The temple was the place where we entered from the east. And y'all, Sunday... There's a reason why the church has historically called this day Easter. That resurrection hope, the thing we're marching to, this thing we're longing for, for coming home. We celebrate it this weekend. We celebrate it together. So my, my last thought as we close, my last thought is to challenge you to think about this, to see the contrast in Solomon's life and ask yourself, examine your heart, what, what is it we're escaping into? What is it we think is going to satisfy us because God's glory is right there. It's right there, right in this place, in this world, in this communion that we have with him and with each other because his presence has been poured out. Let's pray.
God, there's so many distractions and temptations for us. There's so many things that we could lose our hearts, our souls, our imaginations and get drawn into. There's so many things that tempt us to think that by pouring our lives into them, we'll find some kind of satisfaction. And Lord, I pray you would guard us from those temptations. Not only that, you'd make us aware of the ways they already have hold of us in thinking that something else will satisfy us. Lord, our hearts are restless, and they will be restless until we find our home with you. So bring us home to you. Bring us an awareness of having come home to you because it's not something we have to make happen, but you finish the work. We thank you for that. We celebrate it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.